we are tonight again setting our eyes on the book of Philemon. Father, thank you that every inch of the universe belongs to you and to your son. Thank you that this place belongs to you, that this time now belongs to you. And we pray, God, that you would take it and make it clear to us that this time and this word, that they are your own. God, speak to us. Show us your son. Show us ourselves. Set us free tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to admit uh, that I'm a a bit of a a sucker for war history. Uh, I enjoy uh, it to some extent in the movies uh, or in books, but I'm particularly drawn to war history when it's presented in the form of a documentary. And so because of that, last fall, some of you may remember Uh, There was this Ken Burns special on PBS for several nights, a World War II documentary entitled The War, and I spent countless hours in front of my TV and recorded some of the episodes so that I wouldn't miss them. Uh, And one of the most intriguing things about that documentary, one of the most memorable things and the most fascinating stories was of a young Italian-American soldier from Waterbury, Connecticut. His name was Babe Charlo. He fought on the front lines of and eventually lost his life in the several months long battle of Anzio Beach in Italy. And what was so intriguing uh, can be understood when you listen just to a few lines from the transcript of that documentary. Some 7,000 Allied personnel were killed during the Anzio campaign, 36,000 more were wounded or missing and another 44,000 were classified as non-battle casualties, victims of frostbite and trench foot, shell shock, and madness. Axis Sally, the Nazi radio propagandist, began calling Anzio the largest self-supporting prisoner of war camp in the world, and German aircraft littered the beach with leaflets, urging Allied soldiers to surrender. The beachhead, they said, has become a death's head. On the front line with the 3rd Infantry Division, Babe Charlo saw all of it, took part in some of it, but never said a word about any of it in his letters home. Then over the course of the next few minutes, the documentary proceeded to actually present some of those letters home. March 27, 1944. I just got through with Chow. We are having beautiful weather here, and I hope it is the same way there so you can take the babies out every afternoon. Love, babe. April 30th, 1944. Last night I received about ten letters. I'm glad to hear that the house was filled with flowers for Mother's Day, that you all got a gift for Mom. Don't worry about my money situation because there isn't much to spend it on here in Anzio. Love, babe. All of his letters were just like that, brief and filled with an amazing spirit of self-forgetfulness. All around this young man was death and destruction. Every breath he breathed could have been his last. The Nazis had Babe and his American comrades completely surrounded there on that beach and were intent on pushing them into the ocean. 
And yet, in all of his letters home, he mentioned none of that. And instead, his notes were filled with happiness at how his family was doing and well wishes for them. Never felt sorry for himself, never gave the details of his suffering, never gave his family any reason at all to worry about him. And I watched those film clips again this week and I was reminded of Paul's letter to Philemon. Because here Paul sits, not on a battlefield, but in a prison. In all likelihood, he was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier. He couldn't go home. He couldn't visit any of the churches that he had grown to love. He could not preach any longer to large crowds as he'd been accustomed to doing. And like Babe Charlo, he awakened every single morning of his life knowing that that sunrise might be the last one that he ever saw. And yet, when you read his letter, his brief little letter to Philemon, there's a great sense of self-forgetfulness in it. Paul doesn't complain. He doesn't mention any of the details of his suffering. He doesn't give Philemon or the church at Colossae reason to feel sorry for him. In fact, this letter hardly says anything about Paul himself at all. The ink is spilled onto the page here out of concern for others, not at all out of self-pity. I want you to read this letter again with me with an eye particularly for the self-forgetfulness of Paul as he writes to his friend Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow worker, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. 
At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I hope you noticed there that Paul is writing not on behalf of himself, really. He mentions that he would like to have Philemon around and he hopes that he'll be set free. But this letter is about Onesimus. This letter is about someone else. This letter is about the relationship of two men. And Paul's writing it in prison. You would think he would write about himself. You would think he would be pleading for help and pleading for release. But that's not what he writes at all. Now, I pointed out to you on Sunday that this letter is about bondage and it is about freedom. We saw on Sunday that Onesimus certainly was in a form of physical bondage. He was in slavery or as we would call that particular kind of slavery, he was in indentured service to Philemon. And the reason for that physical slavery was Onesimus's spiritual slavery. Having been enslaved by sin, having turned his back on God, having lived his life recklessly and lawlessly, Onesimus had gotten himself into so much trouble that now he had to pay his debts or make restitution for his crimes. We're not sure which. But he had to pay back Philemon by means of forced labor. So Onesimus was in bondage, no doubt, both physically and spiritually. And yet we saw that in verse 10, Onesimus had been set free from his spiritual slavery at least, set free by Jesus. He had been begotten or born again through the gospel witness of the Apostle Paul. So though Onesimus was still, in the physical sense, a slave, he had been spiritually set free. And I want you to see tonight that we can say the same thing about Paul. Paul, as we saw in verses 1 and 9 and 10 and 13, is in a physical sense enslaved. He is chained down to a Roman soldier. He had not, like Onesimus, forfeited his freedom. He had not been involved in criminal activity and gotten himself enslaved. Rather, Paul's freedom had been taken from him simply because, verse 13, he preached the gospel. Yet, although it's for different reasons, Paul and Onesimus are nonetheless equally tied down, aren't they? Both of them have lost their ability to go where they want and to do what they want and so on. Both of them are in a form of physical bondage. Paul in prison, Onesimus in indentured service. And yet both of them also have been set free spiritually by Jesus. We saw it in Onesimus in verses 10 through 13, set free from the penalty of sin and set free from the power of sin, having gone from being useless to useful. We saw him being set free spiritually on Sunday. And we see tonight the freedom that Jesus brought to Paul, not just in a handful of verses like we see with Onesimus, but really in almost every verse of this letter, we see the freedom of Paul before our eyes. Now his circumstances seem stacked against him. First of all, verse 9, he's an old man. He calls himself Paul the aged. And second of all, he's in prison. You just picture that. You wouldn't imagine that a senior citizen chained up to a Roman guard in prison somewhere, would be able to get a great deal of missionary work accomplished. And yet, Jesus set Paul free from those obstacles. 
Not physically free, mind you, but free in such a way that in this letter we see that Paul keeps right on going, preaching and writing and praying and loving the churches and obeying God. Even though he is locked up in prison, Paul continues to do what God has called him to do. And I want to suggest to you tonight that just as Jesus set Paul free from these difficult circumstances to continue being and doing what God had called him to be and do, Jesus is willing and able to do the same thing for you. Are there situations in which you feel enslaved? Maybe circumstances that look like they are going to prevent you from being all that God wants you to be. I'm sure there are. There are in my life from time to time. Things that happen and I think I'll just, I just can't do it today. I just can't serve God today. This is too much. For some of us, maybe it's sickness or some sort of physical weakness. Maybe it's the slowing down effects that old age brings and will bring to us all. Maybe for you the obstacles seem to be financial. Maybe they're family strife or difficulties at work. Maybe it's sometimes that you're not sure how long you're going actually to have work. The circumstances that may make you feel like you can't serve God wholeheartedly may be loneliness, may be fatigue, it may be strong-willed children, it may be a sordid past, all sorts of things. All sorts of circumstances can plot themselves down in our lives and make us feel like, well, I just can't do what I thought I was going to do. I just can't be all that God wants me to be. But in any of these circumstances, Paul's example, I think, teaches us that we may still serve God with a whole heart. We may still be spiritually fruitful and that our circumstances do not have to have control over our lives. They didn't have control over Paul's life. Now, he, like we, had to find new ways of service. We may have to do that. We may have to be a little bit creative given our circumstances and figuring out how we're going to serve the Lord. But our circumstances do not have to prevent us from serving the Lord. Jesus set Paul free from his circumstances, from his imprisonment. Maybe... More accurately, we should say Jesus set Paul free in the midst of his circumstances. For he didn't actually remove the chains from Paul's ankles, but he did break them off of Paul's heart so that Paul's was an attitude of self-forgetfulness in prison instead of self-pity. So that when he went into prison, instead of writing off his missionary career, Paul started writing missionary letters. It's an amazing thing. Paul is not enslaved by these difficult circumstances. And as we take a closer look at this letter, I want you to realize that you don't have to be either. Jesus loves to set people free to do his will in spite of and in the midst of the most trying times. To help us get our hearts and our minds around that reality, I want us to take a closer look at Paul's self-forgetfulness and to notice how much it enabled him to accomplish for Jesus, even while he was sitting in prison. I want to point out four things to you. First of all, though he was in prison, Paul was free to thank God and pray. Paul was free to thank God and pray. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you, Philemon, in my prayers. That's amazing. I thank my God always, always. 
Even now? Even in prison? Yes. How was Paul able to do that? How was Paul able to give thanks even in these circumstances? I'm not sure I would have been giving thanks in these circumstances. But Paul does. How does he do it? I'm sure there are several reasons, but Paul is going to mention one as we read on into verse 5. How was Paul able to give thanks even in prison? Well, as verse 5 shows us, because his eyes weren't fixed on himself, nor were his ears listening to himself. He says he thanks God and he prays because, verse 5, I hear of your love and faith, Philemon. Paul was not sitting in his prison cell thinking about Paul. Paul was not sitting in his prison cell noticing the flies buzzing around his head or complaining about the food rations or letting his sense of indignation fester. He wasn't doing, in other words, what so many of us would have done in that circumstance and what we do in our difficult circumstances. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't murmuring. He wasn't thinking about himself. No, Paul's eyes were fixed on Colossae, where Philemon lived. They were fixed probably on Philippi and Ephesus and Galatia and all the other places where he had been and preached and where the churches had been planted. Apparently people were bringing him word from these churches abroad. So that in verse 5, he knows what's happening in Colossae. He is hearing of Philemon's love and Philemon's faith. And there's little doubt that he was getting updates from some of the other churches as well. So Paul is in his prison cell compiling, if you will, his own little first century version of Operation World. His own little prayer book, complete with facts and updates and prayer requests from people all around the known world. And that's why he's able to pray and give thanks always, even in the midst of prison. Because his eyes were focused, not on himself, but outward. And there are a couple of applications, I think, that we can draw from this. The first, I hope the obvious one, is an encouragement to fix your eyes outward. Of course, your circumstances are going to bog you down if you're only always thinking about yourself, about your finances or your fatigue or your treatments or whatever it is. But what if you were more intentional? And what if I was more intentional to keep up with other brothers and sisters in our church? Or what if we were more serious about researching and praying for missionaries and people groups? What if we regularly read something like the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter and heard about the persecuted church in the world? Well, we'd be reminded that our sufferings are not all that uncommon, wouldn't we? And we would be reminded, perhaps, that our sufferings aren't as bad as they could be. They're not as bad as so many people are enduring. And we would be reminded as well that both in our neighborhood and among the nations, there are so many needs to be met that there is not time for us to lay down on the spiritual job. There is not time for us to throw pity parties for ourselves. Now, before you feel too guilty or before you start to say, well, you don't understand my situation. If you were where I am, you would be looking at yourself too. You're right. First of all, I would. So I preach this to myself. But let me say this as well. I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul's example is saying, that if we rest a little bit more during sickness or fatigue or old age that we are necessarily laying down on the job. Far from it. Instead, what what I want to point out from Paul's example is that when Paul was no longer able to do the things he used to do, 
he was no longer able to do the things he used to do. And some of us will be that way as well, and that's okay. But when Paul was no longer able to do the things he used to do, he didn't stop doing altogether. He couldn't any longer travel and preach like he once did. And there are going to be times in our lives as we face difficulty or as we get older where we can't any longer do what we once did. Or we can't do what we would like to do. Or we can't do what someone else is doing. And we should never, ever feel guilty about that. But we mustn't quit either. For though Paul could no longer travel, Paul started writing. Or writing even more than he already was. And in addition to that, verse 4 reminds us, not only did Paul replace preaching with writing, but he replaced preaching now with praying. He's a wonderful example to us, isn't he? Sometimes we get to a place where because of age or because of sickness or because of difficulties, maybe we can't go on the mission trip. Maybe we can't work in the nursery anymore. Maybe we can't physically stand out in the sun all afternoon handing out tracts at Ridge Day. But we can do what Paul did when he could do none of those things. We can pray. When you're in the hospital, you can pray. When you're sick on your bed at home, You can pray when you're older and homebound, and many of us will be someday. Even then, we can pray. And we, like Paul, can find other avenues of service as well. Some of us may need to write letters of encouragement like Paul did. Maybe there are other things that we need to do, but whatever it is, the point is, even though Paul is in prison, he is still useful to God. And even though we have difficulty in our lives and circumstances sometimes seem to prevent us from being useful to God, it's not so. God always has something that we can do. So we needn't let and we mustn't let our circumstances enslave us or paralyze us in the Lord's work. So that's number one. Though he was in prison, Paul was free to thank God and to pray. Number two, though he was in prison, Paul was free to share Jesus. Free to share Jesus. I appeal to you, verse 10. For my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus was born again through Paul's witness in prison. Isn't that fantastic? Just because Paul went to jail, he didn't assume that his missionary career was over. Just because he was imprisoned, he didn't assume that he could no longer share the gospel. For he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, during this same imprisonment probably, the word of God is not imprisoned. I'm in prison, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I can still keep sharing Jesus with the opportunities I have. So Paul didn't fold up his evangelistic tent. He kept on sharing Jesus. In fact, given what we know that Paul himself wrote concerning the sovereignty of God, we should probably assume that when Paul went into jail, he said something like this to himself. Well, God must want me in prison. There must be someone there in prison or someone who's going to show up at the prison whom God wants me to win to Jesus. What an attitude for him to have. And quite obviously there was someone that God wanted him to win to Jesus. It was Onesimus. And believing that God was sovereign and that God had work for him to do in the prison kept him from giving up. And it freed him up to continue sharing Jesus. And how do you and I know that God may not have someone for us to preach to in the unemployment line or in the hospital or in the funeral home or in the cancer center 
How do we know that when we're exhausted with sickness and we have to stay home and can't be here on Wednesdays or Sundays or can't be at work, how do we know that that might not be an opportunity to stay close to home and maybe get to know some neighbors that we would otherwise just pass by in our cars on the street as we're running to and fro? Given what the Apostle Paul teaches about the sovereignty and goodness of God and given how we see it play out in the story, we should probably assume with Paul that God has us in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they are, because there must be someone in the same place as us who needs to hear about Jesus. I think that's a very good assumption when we're in difficult spots. God must have me here for a reason. Maybe there's an Onesimus around the corner. We need to so trust Jesus that we are free to share him even when things aren't going our way. So though he was in prison, Paul was free to thank God and pray. He was free to share Jesus. And number three, though he was in prison, Paul was free to give. Free to give. In verses 11, 12, and 13, we learned that Onesimus had become quite a useful helper to Paul. He ministered to Paul during his imprisonment. Maybe he nursed his wounds. Maybe he encouraged him. Maybe he served as a mail carrier. We don't know exactly, but somehow he was a great help to Paul. And yet here we find Paul sending him back to Philemon. Here we find Paul giving him up. Giving up his most useful helper. Giving up, verse 12, his very heart. And not only that, not only does Paul give up his very heart, his helper, but in verses 18 and 19, we found that Paul was willing to give a significant amount of money away to Philemon as well. He says, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now that's a significant promise for a couple of reasons. I wonder if it ever occurred to you as you read this book that Paul is promising money, perhaps a significant amount of money, and yet he's in prison. How does he do that? Well, he must have had somehow some money saved up, perhaps an inheritance, perhaps some other way. He must have had some money set aside somewhere in order to be able to make a pledge like this. But the fact that he's in prison presumably means that he has no way of earning any more cash. And so in verses 18 and 19, what Paul is doing is pledging money that's going to deplete a bank account that has nothing coming in to the debit column, excuse me, to the credit column. There's no money coming in, and Paul's giving it away. It's a significant pledge he makes here, isn't it? Second, it's a significant promise because the debt owed by Onesimus to Philemon was considerable enough that Onesimus had been sentenced to pay it back by means of forced enslavement. So it wasn't a few dollars. It was a lot of money. So Paul is sending away his dear friend and his irreplaceable helper. And with him, Paul is sending away a pledge of a significant amount of irreplaceable money. All from the plush confines of his Roman imprisonment. Quite a generous fellow, I think. And I find it helpful. I find it freeing. Because... More often than not, when we ourselves find ourselves in trying circumstances, we see that as a signal that we should probably do a little more keeping and a little less giving. In other words, when times get tough, worldly wisdom says, now is not the time for generosity. Now is the time for a rainy day fund. Now is the time to be a little more conservative and a little less liberal with our cash, 
or with our time or with other assets and resources that we may have. Difficulty for us often becomes an excuse for selfishness, and it could have for Paul as well. Paul could have said to himself, hmm, I know that Onesimus might be a really big help to Philemon, and I know that if I would give this money, it would sure help in the restoration and reunion of Philemon and Onesimus. And I know if the two of them were restored to one another and made right with one another, that would be a great thing. What a testimony that would be. And all that would be wonderful in normal situations, but times are tough right now. I really need Onesimus right now. In fact, I think I need him more than Philemon does. And I certainly need that savings I've put away. What if I do get out of jail? What am I going to do? I'm going to need some money set aside. And so I'm sure that given my circumstances, I need both the man and the money more than Philemon does. So I'll just hang on to them for a little while longer. And when things begin to look up, then I'll send them on. Isn't that the logic that we often use when we're in difficulty? Of course it is. I'm in difficulty. Now's not the time for generosity. Now's not the time for giving. Now's the time for keeping. But Paul doesn't use that logic. Even at his point of greatest need, he doesn't use that logic. He's a giver. Why? Because he's been set free by Jesus. Having met Jesus, Jesus is now more important to Paul than Paul is. And therefore... Onesimus and Philemon are more important to Paul than Paul is. And consequently, though he is in the midst of difficult times, Paul is not controlled by difficult times. Are you? Or are you free to give? Paul was in prison and yet he was free to thank God and pray. He was free to share Jesus. He was free to give. And fourthly, though he was in prison, Paul was free to obey free to obey. Notice verses 12 and 13 again. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, yes, without a doubt, out of the overflow of his generosity. But Paul also sent Onesimus back to Philemon as a simple matter of right and wrong. After all, Onesimus legally was still beholden to Philemon. Onesimus had run away on a sentence. And whatever debt he owed Philemon, whether it was financial or criminal, criminal was still outstanding, it seems, as verse 18 indicates. So not only did Paul want to send Onesimus back, but as a matter of honesty, as a matter of uprightness, Paul had to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And I think, again, Paul's example is intriguing and it is challenging because though many of us aren't tempted to bend the rules either God's rules or man's rules on a regular basis things sometimes change when we're in a jam don't they oh no I would never break the law but now I'm in a jam and maybe it would be expedient to do that so sometimes when we're running a little late or when the finances are a little tight or when it feels like the government or the employer is not do a little speeding, do a little fudging, withhold some of God's money from him, smuggle home some useful supplies from the office, leave work a little bit before we're supposed to and yet take the full paycheck, and so on. 
We don't find Paul doing any of that, do we? It would have been easy for him to justify breaking the law in the case of Onesimus. It would have been easy for him to say to himself, I know that legally I need to send Onesimus back to Philemon and eventually I'll do the right thing. But right now, I really need Onesimus. After all, I'm in prison. And I need Onesimus worse probably than Philemon does. So even though he rightfully should go back and finish his sentence, I need him more. And not only that, I shouldn't even be here in this prison. This is such a corrupt government. Why should I bother to go to all the trouble of following their rules when they're so unfair to me? In fact, if I just hang on for Onesimus for a little while longer, maybe that'll sort of even things out between me and Rome. It's not going to hurt anyone after all. I think I'll just keep him. You ever responded like that? You ever reasoned with yourself like that? I have. Times are tough, and so I'll just bend the rules. It's okay. Nobody's going to be hurt. What is that? Slavery. It's slavery. It's slavery to our circumstances. It's giving in to the false notion that if I'm in difficulty, that justifies me not doing exactly what God tells me to do. And it's a notion, frankly, that the world thinks is quite heroic. I mean, the world thinks it's wonderful if someone bucks the system because they haven't been treated fairly, but it's abominable in God's sight, and we see that in Paul's example. Paul does what's right, even though it hurts him, and even though he's being treated unfairly. And Jesus is longing, I believe, to set us free in the same way, and we need to let him. Some of us may need to make some things right with the federal government. Some of us may need to make some things right with our employer or with the offering plate or with a family member or an estranged friend. We need to take advantage of the freedom that we have in Jesus to obey God. Now, Paul was set free by Jesus. He was enslaved, and yet he was not enslaved. He was in difficult circumstances, and yet he was not enslaved to those circumstances. Now, the final question is, how did that work? Why was that so? How did Jesus set Paul free? Well, it had a lot to do with Paul's initial meeting with Jesus in Acts 9, didn't it? Jesus met Paul on the road, knocked him off his horse, changed his heart, and Paul repented of his sins and entrusted himself to Jesus wholeheartedly. And as we said a week ago, when that happens, when a person entrusts themselves to the Savior, Jesus comes to live inside that heart. And when Jesus comes to live inside a heart, that changes everything. So tonight, if you find yourself controlled by your circumstances, unable to control your anger, unable to control your appetites, unable to thank God or serve Him, perhaps the solution is to entrust yourself to Jesus. Perhaps you've never truly repented of your sins and handed the keys of your life over to Him. Perhaps He's never really set you free in the first place. And tonight is the night where you must turn to Him. Tonight is the night if that's your position, to be set free. But what if you are a Christian? What if Jesus has quite obviously changed your life, forgiven your sins, and come to live inside of you? And you're seeing him setting you free in many ways, and yet there's this one area or this one set of circumstances where you still find yourself struggling to obey 
or to forgive or to pray or to give thanks. Just in this one area or maybe two, what's the solution to that if you already are a believer? How does Jesus continue setting someone like you free from something like that? The answer, I believe, from this story of Paul, the prisoner, is the word confidence. Confidence. The word's not used more than a handful of times in the entire Bible, and yet Paul uses it twice here in this short little letter to Philemon. First of all, in verse 8, he says he has enough confidence in Christ to order Philemon to return or to forgive his runaway slave. Now, that may sound self-assertive at first. I have enough confidence to order you, but I don't think that's what Paul is doing. I think Paul is sincere when he says that his confidence is in Christ. And I think what he means is, is this. Even though I'm locked up, I'm still certain that God has called me. I'm still certain that I'm a child of God, first of all, and that I'm an apostle of God, second of all. He's confident about the calling that God has on his life as a child and as an apostle. And then also in verse 21, Paul has confidence that Philemon will do what Paul has asked him to do, that Philemon will set Onesimus free from his indentured service. And again, I don't think this confidence is in Paul's own authority, and I don't think it's really confidence in Philemon's character, so much as it is confidence that God is at work here. He's standing back from the situation saying, isn't it amazing that Onesimus ends up here? And that he believes and that he's willing to go back. Surely God's at work. And so I have every confidence, Philemon, since God is at work, that you're going to do what you're supposed to do as well. I think what Paul is saying in verse 21 is, surely God is working all things together for good. Surely God is at work in this situation. I'm confident of it. And those two sentences, verse 8 and verse 21, I think are the key to Paul's freedom. Because he has confidence, verse 8, that he belongs to God, And because he has confidence, verse 21, that God is working the details of his life together for good, he is free, no matter what the circumstances. Let me show you how it works. If Paul is God's child, then of course he can be thankful, verse 4, no matter what the circumstances are. He's God's child. And if you are God's child, so can you be thankful, no matter what the circumstances. If Paul is God's child, then of course God still has work for him to do. Even if he can't do what he used to do. He's God's child. God has something for him and the same is true for you. If God is really working all things together for good in Paul's life, then of course he has reason to believe that his imprisonment is no accident. And that therefore he in jail, like you in the hospital or the unemployment line or the funeral home, can begin looking for people that God wants him to meet. And to share Jesus with. If Paul is God's child. Then of course Paul can give away his money. And give away his helper. And of course he can be honest. Even if it seems to hurt the bottom line. He's God's child. God's going to take care of him. God is going to meet his needs. And God will meet your needs as well. You see. Paul's confidence. Was the means by which Jesus set him free. In the midst of these trying circumstances. Because he was confident that he was God's child and because he was confident that God was working things for his good, he could follow God no matter what. My question to you tonight simply is, do you have enough confidence in Christ to follow him no matter what?
to pray and give thanks no matter what, to give and be generous no matter what, to share Jesus no matter what, to obey no matter what? Do you have enough confidence in Christ to follow Jesus in any and every circumstances? Do you really believe, in other words, that the God who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, 32, but delivered him over for us all, will also meet your every need, no matter what the situation Do you believe that the God who gave you Jesus will be with you in every situation? If you're confident in Him, then you will be free to give thanks and to pray and to share Jesus and to give and to obey no matter the circumstances. For if the Son makes you free, John 8, you are free indeed.